Well, currently, what I'm reading is a, a trilogy by uh, a man by the name of J.R. Tolkien. It's called The Lord of the Rings, and it's one of my favorite uh, trilogies. I've read it before, but I'm doing it, I'm reading it again. And uh, one character in this book, one of my favorite characters, his, his name is Aragorn. And Aragorn, he goes by several different names. Uh, he's also called the Ranger of the North. Uh, they also call him Strider. And Aragorn is a traveler. He's a wanderer. He, he sort of lives on his horse, just wandering around from place to place. And Tolkien, there's a little poem that they sing about Aragorn all the way through the book. And one line in this poem has become famous. It's become iconic. Uh, probably most of you have heard the, the little line. It speaks of Aragorn, and it says, Not all those who wander are lost. Not all those who wander are lost. And this theme of wandering, this theme of travel, this theme of journey is one of uh, Tolkien's major themes in that trilogy. And for Tolkien, it's all about the journey. It's, all about the, it's not about the destination. It's all about the wandering. Not all those who wander are lost. And if you're someone who likes the destination, like I am, you kind of get frustrated with the novels because, you know, you're, it's so slow. They're going from place to place, and you want it to be resolved. But again, for, for Tolkien... The journey is so crucial because the journey is the place where the characters are changed. The characters are, it's not just that they're on a journey, the journey transforms them. And so Bilbo and Aragorn even, uh, all these characters, they're transformed not just in the journey, but through the journey. Not all those who wander are lost. Now today we're, we're, we're beginning a brand new series in the book of Exodus and what we're going to see is the children of Israel are on a journey. They're on a journey in the wilderness for 40 years. And we, we looked earlier at the first part of Exodus, and we saw that they were liberated out of slavery. They were, uh, God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand through the Red Sea. And for the rest of the book, from uh, chapter 16 all the way to the end, we see that God uh, leads his people through the wilderness, the Sinai wilderness. And he chooses not to just bring them directly into the promised land, right, from the Red Sea to the promised land. He leads them on a journey. And why does God do that? Well, Moses, uh, later on in Deuteronomy, he reflects on uh, the meaning of the wilderness wanderings, and this is what he says. He says, remember how God has led you in a desert for 40 years to humble you, to test you, in order that you, to know what was in your heart. So in other words, the journey is there to transform the people of Israel. They are changed on the journey. They're changed through the journey. They're humbled, they're tested, and they learn lessons here. And this becomes sort of a trope. It becomes a metaphor for the Christian life all the way through the Bible. And so one of the main metaphors for the Christian life is that we're in exile, we're on a journey, we're on a process here, and God is changing us through our journeys of faith. And every event in your life along the way the story, and you're being changed along the way. You know, just think about someone who becomes a Christian. Imagine a man whose parents are absolutely impossible to please, always critical, dissatisfied, and he grows up with, with a kind of textbook uh, results, right? He's, he, he lacks confidence, he overworks, you know, he's afraid of commitment, you know, because he feels like he's, he's just going to fail. And let's say that man encounters the gospel, well, suddenly he's free, but he's still dealing with all of that stuff. And throughout the man's life, through the journey, God is going to transform him. And God is transforming you. 
as you wander. Not all those who wander are lost. And, and that's what this st- series is about, learning lessons on the journey. Now, the first lesson we're going to learn is the lesson about the manna. This is such a, such a vivid story, and it's a story that kind of takes a, a life of its own throughout the rest of the Bible. Such an iconic story about the manna in the wilderness. God feeds his people from this bread that just sort of drops down from heaven. And the lesson that the people of Israel learn here, it's an important lesson, it's the first lesson. It's the most basic lesson that we learn on our journey. It's the lesson that God himself is our provider. God's our provider. And so uh, we're gonna look at that this morning. Now this morning's sermon is gonna be a journey. (laughs) We're We're gonna look at the narrative and then the points are gonna come at the end. Okay, so narrative and then points and then we'll close. So let's just, uh, be, let's just pick up the story. Uh, chapter 16, verse one. They set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And so the story uh, opens up and we see the grateful people of Israel. The grateful people of Israel, God has just liberated them through a mighty hand through the Red Sea. And we see the grateful people of Israel, what are they doing? They're complaining against the Lord. Right, just a few days previously, they were singing to the Lord. Oh, look what the Lord has done for us. And now they're saying, what has the Lord done for us lately? And so they're grumbling, they're complaining. And what are they complaining about? They're afraid. They are, God has led them into the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place where uh, biological life can't be sustained. It's a place where human life can't be sustained. And they're looking around at the, at the, at the arid region and, and wondering, how are we going to eat? There is nothing growing out here. What are we going to do? So they're afraid. Where are we going to find food? How are we going to eat? What about our physical needs? They're afraid, and their fear leads to grumbling and complaining. So they're complaining there against Moses in the wilderness. Now, uh, aren't you glad that, that we don't do this? Aren't, they're so, can you believe them? I mean, the grateful children of Israel, they're complaining. Aren't you glad we don't do that? Here's the irony, even in America, where we, we live in the land of abundance, we're in a wealthy nation, we still so often complain about our lack, don't we? Just like the children of Israel. According to a survey that was conducted by the Harris Poll, the American Psychological Association, uh, for the American Psychological Association, money is the top source of stress in our lives, Okay. So beating out work, family responsibilities, and health concerns, money is the number one thing that Americans are worried about. And so we overwork, we stay up late at night, we complain, we get angry about money. And and money translates into our provision, our lack. You know, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Right, so we're still dealing with this issue of lack. And this is why Brene Brown, who's a, she's a psychologist and author and researcher, she wrote a book called The Narrative of Scarcity, or a book where she talks about <clears throat> the narrative of scarcity. And here's what she says. She says, uh, even, in, even in America, we live out of a narrative of scarcity. 
Scarcity thrives in a culture, she, she says, where everyone is hyper aware of lack. And so how many times this week did you say, did, did you, did you say this? I don't have enough. How many times did you complain about the fact that you don't have enough? And here's what Brene Brown goes on to say. For me, and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I did not get enough sleep. Parents, are you with me? The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours Uh, the hours and days of our lives, hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet hit the floor, we're already inadequate, we're already behind, already losing, already lacking something. The internal condition of scarcity lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life. So we are just like them, We are still complaining and worrying about what we don't have enough of. But here's what what you need to know here is that, you know, who are the children of Israel complaining about in the story? Who are they complaining about? They're complaining about Moses. They're saying, Moses, why did you leave us out here? Lead us out here. Why did you take us out? We were better off in Egypt. They're complaining against Moses, but notice what Moses says here in verse 8. He says, your complaints are actually really against who? against God. So in verse 8, Moses says this, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against against us, but against the Lord. So all of your arguments with life, any time that you complain about something you don't have enough of, ultimately that complaint is towards God, against the author of your life. And so here they are complaining, and then look how God responds to their complaint. How does God respond to their their grumbling? Well, God responds to the grumbling by sending them the manna. And so let's look here in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And so what does God do? This gracious God, he doesn't get angry at them because of their grumbling and complaining. He feeds them with manna in the desert. He rains down bread from heaven. Now this bread, it was, um, it was there in the morning with the dew. It was something that was crusty and sweet. And the people said, what is it? And actually the word uh, manna literally means what is it? And that raises a good question, doesn't it? What is this stuff? And what's interesting, especially during the Enlightenment, there were scholars that would theorize, like, what in the world is this manna? What was it that God fed them with in the desert? In my reading this week, I thought one of the most interesting uh, little uh, observations is they said there's a, a biological phenomenon in the Sinai Peninsula. And this is fascinating. They said the, tar- the, the tamarish bush grows in semi-arid climates like, the, in the, like in the Sinai Peninsula. And there are two kinds of sucking bugs that live in this bush. And they suck the, ta- the, the sap out of the bush, which is rich in carbs, and then they excrete the surplus all over the branches and the floor of the desert. And it forms globulates that crystal- crystallize, and due to rapid evaporation, they fall to the ground, 
uh, where they become sweet and sticky and edible. And they have to be collected before the sun rises, before ants get to it. All right, and so apparently in the desert, even now, there's like f- a five to six pound yield of this stuff every year. And so is this what the manna was? This uh, essentially vomit from these bugs in the bushes? Probably not. Because the, <laughs> because the Bible says that this was supernatural provision from God. God brought this stuff. It says it rained down from heaven. And what these people learned as God gave it to them every morning, it says, is that God was their provider. There was a lesson in the manna. Now, at the very end of the chapter in verse 32, uh, notice what Moses says to do. He says, after God has, has given you the manna, he says, I want you to collect just one little piece of it. And here's what I want you to do. He says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, place it before the Lord, and keep it throughout all your generations. And so what are they supposed to do with the manna? Well, take one little piece of it, put it in a jar, and put the jar in the tabernacle before the Lord. And he says the manna in that jar is going to stay good for all future generations. So for generation after generation after generation, the manna isn't going to rot. It's kind of like a Twinkie. (laughs) Which, if you take it, you you all know that, right? You take a Twinkie, you could set that thing out for a million years. It's not going to rot. You need to stop eating those things if you're eating one of those. And remember Wally, right, when it, the year 2050 or something like that, and every, everything's dead in the world, there's no life, no biological life, except for the Twinkie. The Twinkie and Wally is out there. But the manna here is like the Twinkie. It doesn't rot. It stays there in the temple for generation to generation to generation. Because God wanted to teach the future generations a lesson about the manna. The manna, every time the children of Israel looked at the manna, as they saw that little piece of manna like the Twinkie in a jar, what did it teach them about God, about God's provision? Well, let me t- let's talk now about the lesson of the manna. I think it teaches us four things about God's provision. As the children of Israel looked at that, that manna there in the jar, it spoke to them, it spoke to them four things about God's provision in the wilderness. And God's provision for all of us, it's still speaking today. What is it saying? Number one, the manna tells us this, that God's provision is physical. God's provision is physical. When when future generations looked at the manna, it spoke to them that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible is a God that cares for our physical needs. You know, a lot of times we think about God. He's so big and he's so you know, transcended, and God is a spirit. And we think, does God really care about my bread that I'm eating? Does God care about my physical needs? Well, every time they look at the manna, it spoke that the God of the Bible is a God that although he's so big, although he's so vast, he cares about what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear. Sometimes we could be more spiritual than God. And we think, you know, God cares about things like righteousness and holiness and prayer. And yes, he does, but he also cares about your daily needs. That's what the manna speaks. And it spoke it through all future generations because Jesus uh, 
Remember he gave the Lord's Prayer? And I think Jesus was almost certainly thinking about the manna in the Lord's Prayer when he gave us the very first request. You know, the Lord's Prayer, it says, begin by acknowledging God and who God is. But remember the very first uh, thing that God wants us to ask him for? Give us this day our daily bread. God says, I want you to pray for bread. God care, the transcendent God cares about your physical needs. He's not too big for that. In fact, Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount and says, God cares about, God feeds the birds of the air. And if God feeds birds, how much more is God concerned about you, human being, made in God's image? A lot of times we think that God only hears our spiritual prayers. God says, I want you to pray for bread. Do you remember uh, the movie, Meet the Parents, the main character of the movie? Is it Greg Fokker? Is that who it was? <laughs> I'm sorry. Secular guy from New York City, he goes you know, to middle America to meet the parents, and the parents, of course, are very religious, and they don't want him to marry their daughter, and so they ask him to pray for the meal. And of course, Greg Fokker is totally, uh, he's a secular guy. He's never prayed before in his life. And so he sits down to pray, and he, re- and he remembers the song that played over the speaker in the grocery store. Do you remember what it was? Day by day. And so he sits down, and he folds his hands like this in the meal, and he says, day by day, day by day, O oh Lord, three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, and to follow thee more nearly day by day by day. Amen. Right, we think that God hears spiritual prayers like that. But here in the Lord's Prayer, the manna, this is what it teaches us. God cares for things like your bread. He cares for your physical needs. Don't be more spiritual than God. That's what the man has spoke. That's the first thing it speaks as they looked at it in the jar is God cares for my needs. I don't have to worry about my needs. God cares about my needs more than I care about my needs. Here's the, the second thing I think we learned from the manna. God's provision is not only physical. Secondly, God's f- provision is also a test. It's also a test. It's only a test. So embedded in the manna, embedded in the manna is, is, an, is a little test for the people of Israel. And God even says as much. He says, I'm giving you the manna to test you, to see if you will trust and obey me. What was the test? Well, God, uh, God didn't send them a life, lifetime supply of manna. He didn't give them a, th- a three-year uh, storage of manna. He, how much manna did he give them? He give them, gave them only enough for that one single day. And he said, look, I want you to go out in the morning. I want you to gather it just enough for that day and don't store any up. Don't store it up. Don't store it up for two days or three days, just one single day. What did the people of Israel do? They stored it up. And what happened to it? It spoiled. It rotted. And so what was God teaching them there? He says, listen, the manna is not only my provision to you, the manna is also a test. God's provision in your life is also a test of your faith because God only gives you enough for today. God's promise of provision is a daily promise. You know, we want to know that we're going to be taken care of for all of our lives, but God says, here's my promise. I will give you enough for today. Sufficient is the day 
for its worries. Do not worry about tomorrow is what Jesus says. And so the manna, God's provision in your life is for now, it's for today. And you say, well, wait a minute, what about tomorrow? You gotta trust him for that. How many of us in this room are worried about tomorrow? That, that's a test whether you will trust God for your provision for tomorrow. Sufficient is the day for its troubles. When I grew up, my dad was a contractor. That's what he did for his job. And because of that, uh, the way he got paid was often delayed. And so he would do a job, and sometimes the job would take longer than he would project, anticipate. And so we would have to stretch our funds to live out the month until he got completed with that job. And then sometimes he would finish the job and his, his customer would not pay him on time. And what that meant was is that, that we were constantly worried about money in my family. You know, it was a constant prayer request. It was a constant thing that we were worried about. Some of you may feel that. But here's what I remember about my, my childhood. Every single day there was food on the table. And what that means is that all of the stress was wasted energy. Because God, when I look back, gave us what we needed each and every day. That's a manna lesson. That's the test in the manna. Will you trust God or will you live in fear and worry? God says, trust me. I've given it to you today. You're eating today. I'm going to provide for you tomorrow. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't plan. Right, notice how God provides for them through means here. Right, it did come down from heaven, but they had to get off their bottoms and go get it. Right, and God does provide for your needs sometimes through paychecks and things like jobs, but God does provide for your needs. God's provision is a test. Thirdly, let's keep on moving on. What is the, what's the next thing? As, as the people in future generations, as they looked at that manna in the jar, what was the ne- next thing that they learned from that from, from the manna there, they learned that God's provision is a sign. The manna in the wilderness pointed beyond itself. Yes, it was there to provide for their needs at that moment. Yes, it was physical. But it, the manna pointed beyond itself. It pointed not only to the fact that God's there, to be, God wants to provide for your physical needs, it's there also to point out that you've got a deeper need than even your physical ones. And the manna is pushing you and pointing you to God as the fulfillment of that need. In Deuteronomy chapter three, when uh, Moses is reflecting on the manna, this is what he says the manna taught the people. He says, "And, and God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the manna pointed beyond itself. The manna is there to teach them about a deeper need for provision. So as a human being, you've got a a deeper need for satisfaction that can only be filled by God himself. And what the manna teaches you is is don't only go to God to to fulfill your needs, to provide for your needs, but go to God as the one who fulfills you himself. God is the manna. 
which is what Jesus says in the New Testament. So Jesus picks this up in John 8, and he says, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who, who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the spiritual food that you need. And so here's the irony, is we, we need to be satisfied, we need to be satiated. And so often we think that, that, that satiation ultimately comes from things in life. Right, so we chase after that ideal job. If I only get that job, then I'll be satisfied. Or we chase after that ideal relationship. If I only get that relationship, if I can only get my relationship with, this, with my spouse into that place, then I'll be satisfied. If I only get to that locale, if I only get to that geographical area, then I'll be satisfied. You know, if I only get that amount of money or into that neighborhood or that house, then I'll be satisfied. And, and here's what happens. We get those things, maybe, if we're lucky, and then we discover we have a deeper need that nothing in this world will satiate. Jesus says, I am what you need. And the, the man is there to teach the children of Israel this lesson because here's, here's what they're saying. Oh, if we only had the bread pots in Egypt, if we only had that, then we'd be happy. And God says, listen, in the desert with, with nothing, in the desert with nothing, if you've got me, you're gonna be more satiated than you ever were in Egypt. You never know how incredibly wonderful, how clear, how deep, how cool, how sustaining and how delicious the, the bread from God is until your other places of bread dry up. You don't know that God is all you need until God is all you have. And so struggling for a job or, or, or struggling for finances with God is better than anything and everything without him. Quickly, uh, Maslow uh, had the hierarchy of needs Right, you remember this uh, from grade school, you remember this little diagram? And uh, it's helpful, he says the basic needs that you got are physiological, bread, shelter, food, and then you've got safety needs, you've got social needs, esteem needs, and, and self-actualization. And uh, this is uh, what you need for a fulfilled and satiated life. But what the manna teaches us is that you've got a deep, there should be another basic level there. And it's your need for God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the manna points beyond itself. It points to this deeper need. So as the people of Israel, as they, as they looked at that manna in the jar, they learned that God, God's provision is physical. God's provision is a test. God's provision is a sign. It points to you that you've got a deeper need that, that you need to look to God for. And finally, God's, God's provision is grace. God's provision is grace. What I love about the man's story is, is, gosh, what a picture of God's unmerited favor here when he sends the people of Israel the manna. 
Because the story began with the people of Israel complaining against God. God, what have you done for me lately? Right? They're complaining and they're worried and they're freaking out and they're blaming God for all of it. And what does God do in response to that? He says, I will rain bread down from heaven for you. And every morning they woke up and they saw that manna and it was a statement, a huge statement that God is a God of grace, that he gives good things to people that don't deserve it. And manna was a test, remember? Did they pass the test? (laughs) No, they didn't. Every time they, the manna came out, they would hoard it up and gather too much, and then it would spoil, and so they would fail the test. Now, you go to Harvard and you fail a test. What, is, what do they do? You, what happens? Do you fail a lot of them? You get disqualified, and they kick you out. But what kind of a God is this? What kind of a teacher is this? They keep on failing the test. And every morning, God says, let's try it again. And why... Why? Why, you know, why is this? It's because God wanted to show them something. And what was it? Well, in, in Deuteronomy, uh, this is what Moses says. He says, in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you, that, that you went until you came to this place. What did you learn in the wilderness through the manna? It's that God carries his people. Yes, you failed the test. Yes, you failed the test over and over again, but God's mercies are new every morning. And the manna every morning when it came out was a sign that God's mercies are new, that God is a God of grace. God is a God who gives things to people that don't deserve it. And this is so important because we all live by a premise. The premise is if I pass the test, God will provide And what the manna teaches us is that whether you pass the test or not, God provides. Because it's not about your passing the test, but God's faithfulness to you. Jesus Christ was the the only one who was faithful to God and, and receiving his provision. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, although he passed passed all the tests, he takes the pain of of disqualification. And he's put out and he's rejected so that we might receive the benefits of his obedience. And you might be saying, I'm so frustrated. I keep on failing the test. I keep on failing, uh, you know, this test of trust. And even though God provides for me, for me, I'm still worrying and complaining. Well, listen, God's mercies are new every morning because Jesus Christ, the true bread from heaven, has died for you and he's qualified you. And remember, life is a journey. Not all who wander are lost. In fact, sometimes we are found in our wandering. And in every event in your life, and all these tests, and all these situations, are are, are part of the process of learning to trust God. And so tomorrow morning, Monday morning, uh, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of things many of you are worried about. You're stressed, and you're worried, and you're wondering, maybe you're grumbling, The manna is here to speak to you, that God will provide for you. Your creator will take care of you. He will supply all of your needs according to his riches. 
and glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this story about the manna, a story of trust, a story in, in who you are for us. And God, there are many of us wandering in the wilderness uh, in a place of lack, in a place of, of trial and difficulty. And Lord, we pray that you would remind us that you are our sustenance. God, you are the provider of all of our needs. And God, I pray that you'd help us to walk with you and trust you. God, give us courage to move forward, and I pray that we would learn the lessons of the manna. And God, thank you that you are a God of grace, that every morning we wake up and you say, let's try it again. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.